What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Kawhi Leonard is going to join the Clippers. Kawhi turns the corner for the win. Three on the way. Yes. Paul George nails it. Lou Williams for the win. Bingo. Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Clip and Roll. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Russo. And joining me is our special guest, special Special, special. Shane Young. I don't know why I said special like four <laughs> times. Shane Young from Forbes Sports. It is late at night. It, we're re- I'm recording this at 11.50 my time at night. And Shane, it's you're what, three hours ahead? Yeah, it's 2.48 right now. So you're in tomorrow. Yeah. yeah wh- how's it looking over there? Well, if you told me that game four was tonight, I wouldn't believe you. How about that? I mean, there's there's a lot to not believe about this series. So well, yeah, we can just start like with it. that. All right, so we were supposed to do uh, recaps of each of the first three games. I'm going to take full responsibility. I've been really swamped with a lot of things. Stuff was going on personal life. Stuff was going on work-wise. So I apologize that we didn't do recaps of each of the first three games. We decided that we're going to do a long form tonight. Um, we're going to recap each of the first three games in about 10-minute spurts or a little bit less. Than, I mean, it's not it's not going to be uniform. You know, We're just going to go with and see what happens. And then the final 30 minutes, so this is about to be an hour-long podcast. If you're staying for the whole thing, we really appreciate it. The final 30 minutes will be looking at Game 4 and beyond in the series because there are several different ways the rest of this series can go with the Clippers trailing 2-1 to the Dallas Mavericks. So we're going to jump into it. Game 1, Shane, was uh, Saturday, May 22nd. The Dallas Mavericks win 113-103. It was a game in which the Clippers as has been a theme in this series, as we've learned through the first three games, started like doo-doo. They couldn't actually get out of the gates fast enough. Dallas ends up jumping ahead, I believe, by about 12 or 13 points at one point in the first quarter. Um, I believe it was 12 at one point. I think it was 24-12 with like five minutes to go in in the first. The Clippers just, honest to God, this has been the entire series. Dallas starts off really hot in every first quarter. Clippers get behind by double digits. Clippers somehow claw back by the end of the first quarter. Wait, the Clippers are leading midway through the second quarter. It's close at half. Wait a second. Something changed in the third quarter and the game one way or the other, one of the teams ends up pulling away just a little bit. So game one really started us off. Shane, what was your biggest takeaway from game one? uh, As far as basically what you saw out of the Clippers on both ends of the floor. Game one was a was the strangest one of the entire series to me, although I guess you could argue we'll get into game three because the results of game three shouldn't have been what they were considering the shooting numbers for Dallas. But I think for me, game one was like, okay, the Clippers have shown that they can hang with a team that is just doing everything better than they are. And they're still... Up, what, five with, uh, what, what was the exact numbers? You know, game one, up five with a certain amount of time left. It's like in the, in the fourth quarter, you have a chance to really step on their throat and get it done. And 
I I don't really I don't really know how they didn't finish it in game one. I mean, it's 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 <clears throat> that is going to be the indictment on the entire series if they end up losing this, Justin. It's like okay, you didn't take care of business in that afternoon game when you should have. And honestly, my my I guess my overarching takeaway from game one is they start really slow and it seems like it never gets completely out of hand. Like it never gets to and where it's not manageable. And they always, and like, for, for example, they entered, they finished the first quarter of game one only down three. So it's like after you weather that initial storm by Luca and the bunch, I mean, you still end up, you still end up with, you're right in there in the, in the mix. And I think if Marcus Morris plays just a fraction of the way that we have seen him all season long, then the Clippers would not have been down 0-2. So the sequence here is with 7.43 to go in the fourth quarter, Paul George makes a three. The Clippers go up 94-92. Porzingis misses a three. Kawhi comes down, gets gets a great look, a right wing three, up by two, and misses it. Wide open, just misses it. Would have pushed the lead to five if he makes it. Rebound comes off. Finney Smith makes a three. Now Dallas is leading. Rondo makes a three. Rondo makes a, a free throw. All of a sudden, 5.55 to go. Offensive foul by Dorian Finney-Smith. Clippers are up by three with the ball. PG misses a jumper. Porzingis makes a dunk. Clippers turn the ball over. Hardaway makes a three, and now the Clippers are down by two. It's a tie game with three minutes to go, and Finney Smith makes a three. The, M- Morris misses two free throws randomly yeah. with like two and a half to go. The Clippers just started missing free throws in the fourth, which was very strange. Um, the Clippers were in this game. They even had the lead. They were getting good looks. They just couldn't make them. Like The biggest overarching story of game one to me personally was the Clippers couldn't make threes. The greatest three-point shooting team in the NBA this season shot 27.5% on threes, and they took 40 of them. They weren't bad looks. They just missed them. And the crazy part is they still had a great offensive rating in game one, even without making you know a healthy portion of their threes. And that was with Dallas shooting 47% from three, which has been another theme in this series, as we're going to get into over the next couple of games, is that Dallas isn't missing basically Dallas is only missing half their threes, which is a, is a statement that should not be made through a three game stretch pretty much at any point in a postseason series, but it, it, it's where we're at, you know, Lucas hitting step back threes over Avita Zubats. So it's getting rough at times to play Zubats, even though I don't think zoo is the problem. Um, the Clippers are having to go smaller than they would like to Sergi Bakken in game one plays 13 minutes. And while he does look okay, he's not moving well. Rondo looks solid. Nick Batum actually, in my opinion, was their best player in game one. Is Like, seriously, like as crazy as yeah. that sounds, I thought Batum was great in game one. Batum was, he seemed like to be the most disciplined defender on the floor. He seemed to be the one that was poised out there, knocking down uh, his corner looks. I think, I, I think I would have honestly not went away from him down the stretch or in game two, I guess. So, I mean, they kind of changed things up and he, he didn't end up playing as much the next game, but uh, yeah, game one was, was the story of that. I mean, Nick, he is always going to be there. And I think, was it, was it you or was it, I forgot who asked him before the playoffs started, like, this is your first time, like in the playoffs in five years or so. I mean, it's like, are you going to be ready? And he's like, man, you never, 
you never lose the ability to get up for a moment like this. So, hey, he, he's been showing it so far. Yeah, I didn't ask him that question, but I, I do remember that question getting asked to him because I was actually going to ask a similar question to him if yeah. I got the chance because I looked it up and it, this is his first postseason run in, or postseason series in five years, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, Dallas shoots 50% from the field in game one, 47% from the line. Um, they're 20, I'm sorry, uh, 47% from three. They go 20 of 26 from the line. Uh, a big problem for the Clippers in game one just like it was as we're going to get into game two and a similar story in game three is the Clippers had a real tough time giving up second chance points to Dallas. And that has been a theme. Like we're going to talk about themes quite a bit in the series, but that was another theme is in game one, Dallas ends up getting 19 second chance points on 10 offensive rebounds, which is, you know, if you're getting 1.9 points per second, basically 1.9 points per offensive rebound, that's, that's absurd because the Clippers had 13 offensive rebounds. So they had three more offensive rebounds than Dallas did, but only got 10 second chance points. So you get three more offensive rebounds, but nine fewer points. Like we're talking a 10 point game on the final score margin. That was a lot closer before the, like the last minute or two when the Clippers tried to foul to keep the game closer or things like that. So like they were there in a game where they shot horrible, in a game where they missed free throws in the fourth quarter, in a game where Dallas shot 47% from three and was killing them on the offensive glass, if they could have just cleaned up one thing, just one, not multiple, just one, they probably or possibly win game one. And the story coming out of game one is, wow, the Clippers shot terribly. The Mavericks shot great, but the Clippers somehow won. And then all of a sudden, like, what does that do to Dallas mentally? Well, that didn't happen. Dallas wins game one and we go back into game two and we're thinking, all right, the Clippers had two days off. Maybe the story of game two is going to be the Clippers come out focused they take Dallas to task, and we start to go, all right, the L.A. Clippers are here. Officially, this series has begun. That didn't happen because, once again, Dallas got off to a really good start. And at one point in the first quarter, I believe Dallas was even up by, by eight or ten points. And they were giving the Clippers problems primarily because Luka Doncic was once again hitting step-back threes over Ravica Zubats, and Maxi Kleba was making everything in the world. Maxi Kleba had 12 first-quarter points in Game 2. That's what ultimately killed the Clippers from a starting standpoint. And his impact in Game 2 was felt all throughout the margins just because of that start. He finishes with 13 points. But when he has that kind of quarter in the first quarter, it buoys Dallas to kind of bridge the gap until someone else can step up. And the someone else who stepped up was Tim Hardaway Jr. Tim Hardaway Jr. has 10 points in the first quarter. He then comes out in the second half and has 15 points on only seven shots. Tim Hardaway Jr. scored 28 points in game two, only took 14 shots. And he's knocking down off the dribble threes in people's faces like they're not even there, man. Like... If the Clippers aren't able to contain Clay Thompson, I mean Tim Hardaway Jr., then there's not going to be. I see what you a, did. I, I see what you did. That was that was nice. There, there's not going to be a way for them to to win the series. I mean, it's it's remarkable, man, how Hardaway can be the biggest and best piece. I guess not biggest literally, but figuratively piece from that Knicks trade, and it's like. Hardaway Jr., man, did you ever, when he got drafted, did you ever foresee him being a guy that in one single playoff series 
could on very high volume. This isn't moderate volume. This isn't like um, you're getting your you're a role player that's taking three or four threes and they're knocking them down because they're wide open. This is high volume, high degree of difficulty on them for the most part. I mean, there are there have been breakdowns as we'll get into. I think you did an excellent job in that game two breakdown where the very last play, the 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 kill shot when it comes to uh, all the overcorrection they did against Luca and and overhelping and Hardaway Jr. had a really nice wide open look, a uh, clean look to win game two, which we'll get to. But I mean, it's it's been like he he has always knocked down these shots in the series, no matter if they're open, contested, whatever the case is. But did you see him being this whenever he got drafted? Like I didn't. I mean, no. I mean, I I don't know who did, and I don't mean that like a like a thing where like no one get, saw this coming, but like. I mean, really, who who saw this to where he's confidently pulling up off the dribble threes in guys' faces and just and just knocking them down? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the series, so we're encapsulating games one through three for Hardaway here. He's seven of eight. This is according to Synergy. He's seven of eight on off the dribble threes in the half court so far in the series. His only miss, his only miss out of those eight attempts came right at half court on a heave to beat the second quarter buzzer in game two. And he almost banked it in, dude. <laughs> yeah, he almost made it. I actually thought he he shot it towards me where I'm sitting behind the basket. I thought it was in. Oh um, he's just not missing. And like, like I said, I did the video breakdown of game two on Tim Hardaway Jr. Because I really did, I really did feel in my heart of hearts. He was the biggest difference maker in that game. They don't win that game without him. Like, yes, yeah. Porzingis has 20 and actually looks competent down the stretch of that game. Yes, Doncic has 39, 7, and 7. And he's hitting step-back threes over people and yada, yada, yada. Like, yeah, like, that's cool. Hardaway dropped 28. And he dropped 28 <laughs> on 14 shots because they had no answer for him because they defended him very lazily. They let him get going. And then he started making tough shots. Like, they, they've defended him in very perplexing ways. And I don't understand it. Um, but in game two, it's crazy because PG has 28. Kawhi Leonard has 41. Your top two players have 69 points on 43 shots. And the rest of your team just didn't come to play. They just didn't come to play. They had the rest of the Clippers had 50, uh, 52 points. And they did that on 41 shots. That's not going to get the job done. The role players in games one and two, got outplayed by Dallas's role players. Now, if you want to consider Hardaway a role player, you can't. I, I consider him one. I basically consider everyone but Doncic and to a lesser degree Porzingis. But pretty much for Dallas, it's just Doncic at this point. Something, um, uh, yeah, sticking on the Hardaway point, man, something that I really like that Rick Harlow has done too is give him not, I, I wouldn't say a steady dosage, but it's been a, it, just a few here and there of letting him dictate off a of pick and roll. I mean, I, there was a couple possessions in game two where it might have been the start of the game, to be honest with you, where he comes off a ball screen yeah. and Pat, Pat Bev chases over. Was it Kleba? He hits the floater. Yeah. And, uh, well, th- there was a floater one, but I, I was also talking about where he pulls up from three after Pat Bev gets blitzed out of the play or gets knocked out of the play off a screen and it's like hey oh, if, i know what you're talking about yes yeah if you're letting hardaway jr 
work in the same manner that Luca is working and you're letting him just pull up like he's Kimba Walker because that's what it resembled. That's what that shot resembled was was Kimba Walker coming off a high ball screen and the way Hardaway Jr. jumps on his jump shot, it's really high in the air. And like it's just if you're letting him do that stuff, then good luck. Credit Karma has always been there to help you make better financial decisions. And now they want to help you even more. With a Credit Karma money spend account, you can be rewarded for good money habits. Credit Karma Money is a brand new checking account where you can win cash reimbursements for making purchases. Just pay with your debit card, and if you win, you'll be notified on the spot, and your Instant Karma cash will be added back to your spend account. Open your FDIC-insured spend account for free. There's no minimum balance requirements, no overdraft fees, and free withdrawals from a network of over 50,000 ATMs. And when you make a purchase between June 8th and June 30th, you'll automatically be entered to win $1 million. Right now, visit creditkarma.com backslash winmoney to open your free account and start winning Instant Karma. Go to creditkarma.com backslash winmoney to sign up for free and start winning. That's creditkarma.com slash winmoney. Instant Karma is sponsored by Credit Karma. No purchase necessary. Exclusions and terms apply. See rules. Banking services provided by MVB Bank Incorporated. Member FDIC. Maximum balance and transfer limits apply. So what pissed me off about that play, the exact play that you're talking about, why the hell was Pat going over the top of the screen at 35 feet? Yeah, acting like he's Steph Curry, which, I mean, like, you know, if you're going to do that, I mean, I, I don't understand. Like, you, you go under, you dare him to take a bad shot, at least with a low probability, and you don't put yourself in that predicament. And plus, Zoo, going- Zoo was Zoo was in drop, and Zoo was way far behind. Well, that's what I was going to bring up, is if you're going over the top there, you can't be in low... Like, someone messed that up, and we don't know if it was Zoo or Pat, and I'm leaning towards Pat, because why are you blitzing over the top of the screen at 35 <laughs> feet? Like, just go under it, dude. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, if he's pulling up from 35, okay, but don't let him walk into a three against drop coverage just because you're overzealous overplaying the top of the screen. Like, what do you do? Like, I don't understand it. And that kind of mistake, I think, is part, uh, when we get into game three, is part of why Pat got benched. Yeah. I mean, you. how many times have we said this on this podcast? Like, he Pat thrives in the chaos, and this might not be the series for that. This isn't a chaos series. This is a thinking series. And Pat cannot like not to say Pat. Pat is not dumb. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is Pat cannot play in a series like this because it's it's too matchup oriented. Yeah, there's not enough spontaneity and chaos for him to thrive in. It's very everything is streamlined Mm. on this. I was I was telling Brian Cullen um, on our spaces before game three that this series to me you can tell me if you if you agree or disagree to me this feels like finals basketball where in the finals or in conference finals when you get deep into those deep rounds it's um it's all like we're going to slow you down we're going to hunt the worst the worst matchup on we're, the floor we're going to out execute you yes and it's it's just going to be slowed down to a halt and you're going to pinpoint the worst defender and you're going to hunt that guy over and over. And that's what this feels like. And it shouldn't like the first round typically doesn't feel like that. Cause if you've watched Portland and Denver, that hasn't felt like that. It, it's felt 
very normal to me. Um, a very fun series to watch, by the way. But uh, Clippers Mavs, it's like a, it's a battle of two teams that, like, legitimately, if they're hot and rolling, they can beat anybody. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Clippers had the lead, a two point lead at half. I believe it was seventy three seventy one. Clippers just had an awful third quarter. That's what put them behind the eight ball uh, going into the fourth. The craziest staffer in this game, honestly, is the Clippers had 60 points in the paint. Uh, mm-hmm. Dallas shot 52.9% from three. Clippers were at 39.4%. Clippers didn't shoot terribly from three. They shot actually pretty well considering, you know, attempts and everything. Dallas just kept refusing to miss. It was a five-point game, and the Clippers had the ball with 4.25 to go. PG comes down, takes a uh, pull-up three, misses it. All of a sudden, you know, Dallas goes up by a little bit more. It's a four-point game with 120 to go. Tim Hardaway gets that three, and that was the kill shot. Um, right yeah. wing three. Uh, Reggie misplayed it. Should have been anchored more at the elbow. Wasn't. Killed the Clippers. Um, Dallas, and this is the thing, and this is where Dallas deserves credit. Dallas had four offensive rebounds in game two and 13 second chance points. I don't know how that's mathematically possible, but I'm literally looking at it and that's the math, Um, which has been a theme in this series of Dallas just absolutely annihilating the Clippers on second chance opportunities. But the other thing is when you really peel back the layers of this, every single mistake, it's almost akin to like a boxing match where it's you have this excellent jabber against this body blower guy who just wants to take body shots and wear you down. And every single mistake you make with a jab, he's hitting you directly in the liver with Mm -hmm. a left hook. And it's like, and they're not major mistakes. They're not, they're, they're not mistakes where you're just like, Oh my God, like, like what the hell just happened? I mean, some of them are, but not all of them. And it's like any overextended jab, they're just ripping you to the body. And that's what Dallas has done in this entire series through three games is every little mistake the Clippers have made has been magnified because Dallas is annihilating them on this. And and the other thing is, too, like when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of this thing, the Clippers have not played well. Mm-hmm. And there's an argument after the first two games, this could have either been 1-1 or 2-0 Clippers, which is a very insane thing. Yeah, I mean, it swings either way. It, it swings with shot variance. It swings with mistakes. Like the Clippers could say to themselves, they, they they could probably tell themselves they could be up 3-0 right now. Like, you know, if we're looking at the whole, thing, this whole series, you obviously wouldn't agree with that. But it's like, I think both teams could talk themselves into that type of stuff if they just clean up their certain mistakes. But uh, you know why I think it feels like that with Dallas capitalizing on 99% of their mistakes? The reason I feel it's to that degree is because Luca, this is not his first rodeo. Like this is not like, this is not Luca's second playoff series. Technically it is, but this dude has been seen every single freaking coverage that you can think of in the pick and roll or any half court defensive coverage since he was like 15 years old, maybe before that. I mean, because I've heard that they teach you from a very young age how to pass out of double teams how to pass out of traps how to just dissect the hell out of your opponent if they decide to swarm you and it feels like that anytime that a defense is going to do that to luca he is going to laugh in their face because 
he's probably the third or second best passer in the world. And that's, you're not going to win that way. Right. Um, Moving to game three, if we can, the biggest adjustment coming out of game two was Ty, Ty Lue basically saying he thinks he needs to do something about the starting lineup. Like that was the biggest takeaways. He thought something needs to be done about the secret of Ty. Yeah. Yeah. This was no, seriously, this was a big secret. Like even when we did pregame media with them before game three, I asked him about the starting lineup. He said, I, 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 I don't have an answer for you yet. And uh, a lot of people thought it was going to be Rondo for Beverly. Yeah. Me and you um, thought that. I, yeah. You and I, I, I know several other people uh, reporter wise who thought that, and it, it wasn't the change. The change was Patrick Beverly out of the starting lineup, but it wasn't Rondo. It was Reggie Jackson, which a lot of fans didn't like. I understand because they thought Reggie wasn't good in the first two games, which yes, he made defensive mistakes. Everyone made defensive mistakes. In fact, Kawhi Leonard made defensive mistakes, and I can point to a play in game one where I know he was pissed at himself because I believe it was Finney Smith or Hardaway gets an open right wing three because he dug down too far at the right elbow. The three goes up, it gets made, and he slapped the crap out of his own hands out of frustration for messing up. Like I think I remember that one. Everyone, It happened right in front of me, and I just remember going, he's pissed. Because yeah. everyone was caught over helping in every game and it was killing them. But game three comes around. Reggie gets the start. Um, same rest of the starting lineup is the same. Honestly, this this change made sense to me from one standpoint. It's the one lineup all year that has had the most continuity because they started together for s- several games in a row. Um, yeah. They knew each other. The lineup data was good. And Ty just decided, look, we're not stopping them. Like, clearly we're not stopping them. So why play Pat when we can get the pace of Reggie and the spacing of Reggie to go alongside? Because maybe that's enough. And we'll get into something else with Reggie as it pertains to Luke in a, in a minute. But Clippers come out in game three. Backs against the wall on the road. 17,705 screaming hopefully vaccinated Dallas Mavericks fans. And the Clippers get absolutely goddamn annihilated in the first eight (laughs) minutes of this game. It was not pretty. Uh, It was 11, nothing before I think anyone even sat down. Um, The Clippers get down 30 to 11 after Jalen Brunson makes a floater. And then something interesting happened. This little comeback starts on one of the most innocuous plays that's probably happened. PG misses a pull-up jumper from the right side. Long rebound. Goes right over the hands, I believe, of Kleba. And lands right in Kawhi Leonard's hands. And he just raises up from 10 feet and makes a little, little jumper. All of a sudden, it's down to 17. And then it's 15. Dallas takes a timeout. Then it's 13 because Nick Batum crashes the offensive glass and gets a putback dunk. And then it's 10 because Kawhi Leonard runs down and hits a pull-up three right at the top of the arc. And then it's eight because PG gets to the rim and makes a layup. And then it's five because PG hits a pull-up three. (laughs) And then it's like, you're sitting there going, what the hell is happening? You went from down 19 to down five, and it took three minutes. Yeah. And it was the first time all series – and now, of course, it's easy to look at this when you go on a 14-0 run. You can look and be like, this is the first time the Clippers are the Clippers. 
But it was the first time we actually looked at them and went, wow, they're here. They're actually here at the game. And that's when the game really started to change. Because from that point of being down 30 to 11, the Clippers killed them. It might not look like it in the, in the final score of 118 to 108. But over the final 40 and a half minutes of that game, they whipped the crap out of them. Mentally, physically, mm. strategically, they did it. They had no answer for Kawhi Leonard driving to the hoop. They had no answer for Paul George driving to the hoop. Reggie Jackson scores 16. So for the second straight game, he's their third leading scorer. Down the stretch of this game, Ty Lue just decides, we're going to go small. So the entire second half, they start the second half, they go small. Avica Zubats is out of the game to start the third quarter. And now Nick Batum's in the game. By the way, fun fact, ESPN never pointed that out. They in the never broadcast pointed out the- what? In the broadcast of the game, ESPN never pointed out that Zubats didn't start the third quarter. Oh, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect Richard Jefferson to point it out. Well, <laughs> I mean, listen, you do what you do, you know. <laughs> um, he was over there making jokes, which I get that's fun for a telecast, but please analyze the game sometimes. This isn't a Richard Jefferson critique. It's everybody. Um, they go small. They just they just effectively decided and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Shane. Ty just effectively decides we're not stopping them. Yeah. We're just, we're just like, we're literally just not stopping them. So why not just put Batum in there for the zoo, play small, switch everything. If they make their jumpers, they make their jumpers, but we're just going to spread you out and get to the lane every time. And if you don't come over to help, we're going to make a layup. And if you do, we're just going to kick out for threes. And in the second half, I honestly just, my biggest takeaway from the second half was, this is actually beautiful basketball. Clippers shoot 54.5%. They get to the paint 14 times, make nine of them. They make six of their 13 threes. They get to the line 14 times. They get a couple offensive rebounds. They give up 11 offensive rebounds, mm-hmm. but, the, but Dallas doesn't kill them on it. Dallas isn't making shots in the paint because they're tougher shots against, against longer defenders. You know, you're not getting isolated against guards all the time now. Um, they're jamming passing lanes. They're making life tough on Luca. Uh, Luca started off like a house of fire. He does go six of 13 in the second half, but he's the only one who scores the biggest thing from this series. I understand I've rambled for a little bit here, but uh, so I apologize. The biggest thing in this series hasn't been Luka Doncic. It's everyone else. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the biggest difference in this series is whose role players play better. That's most. That's what most series come down to. Everyone loves to talk about the stars, and rightfully so, but role players decide titles, and role players decide postseason series. Game one, Dallas role players, so these are the non-Luka role players. Dallas role players score 43 points on 27 shots. Game two, 40 points on 23 shots. Game three, 29 on 29 and that's why the Clippers were able to pull away in the second half because they win the second half by eight points. They win the game by 10. Luka Doncic, 6 of 13 in the second half. Tim Hardaway, 1 of 6. Chris Stapps, Porzingis, 1 of 5. Dorian Finney-Smith, 2 of 6. There's your ball game. At the end of the day, that's the ball game. Dude, game three was... Something. I, I don't even know. Like, All right, so I've, I've told this to a couple people. In my years covering the league or watching the league, whatever you want to say, I have never seen or experienced a game where 
at one part of the game. So at, at like, say, 10 o'clock Eastern, whenever it was <laughs> 30 to 11 Mavericks, I I told you this before we were on the air, like or before we were recording, I was chuckling and thinking like the season's over. I mean, it was fun covering this team this year. I mean, it it's over. It's going to be 3-0 and then they're going to lose on Sunday and that's the funeral. And I thought, okay, like you just have to find things to analyze now. But then what an hour later, not even uh, you go from thinking it's going to be a wrap and the series is over to legitimately thinking the Clippers are going to win the series. How the hell does that happen? I don't know. I don't know. Hey, credit. I think you have to credit a lot of people for what happened in game three specifically, but Ty Lue for managing the timeouts the way he did, not panicking. Have you ever seen that dude worry one time on the sidelines? Nope. I mean, it's it's crazy how even killed he is. Um, and because that's apparently Kawhi's favorite thing to, to be as well. Uh, he always tells <laughs> us that. So um, I think you also have to credit Paul George. I think Paul George might have been in, in a game where Kawhi had 36 on incredible efficiency and they couldn't stop him in the fourth quarter. That dude was a machine. And we'll talk about the action that that created a lot of those uh, points. But um, in a game where Kawhi did that, in a game where Rondo was really good, plus 22 on the night, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a good Ty Lue game. Paul George Terrence Mann. Yes, Terrence Mann. Pa- Paul George was the most important player to me because if he does not come out with 22 of his 29 in that first half – the, the way he was attacking Justin was something that I haven't seen since 2019 with the Thunder or 2018, 19 with the Thunder. There's one possession in particular here that I thought was really important. Um, 228 in the first quarter. Uh, Kawhi had just cut it to 10, 30 to 20, I believe. And PG comes down and he catches at the logo in motion. And Maxi Kleba is actually like near the nail, near the foul line. Um, and PG could have easily walked into a three or or done one of his patented like i'm going to fake that i am that i'm driving and then hard plant and take that mid-ranger with a little bit of space no this dude forked his way into the paint he crossed over huh he what now he forked his way oh okay <laughs> into the paint um I guess I should have said knifed, not knifed his way into the paint. But the way he was attacking Kleba off the dribble was something special. I mean, he he didn't settle. I mean, he was going right to the rim, and I thought that was the most important takeaway of the entire game and series so far is that PG is playoff P right now, and he is attacking the rim with reckless abandon. For the the first time the Clippers led by five points in this series, not – which isn't a big lead, like five points. I mean, it is what it is. Their first five point lead in this series did not come until the six twenty three mark of the third quarter in game three. That is an absolutely astounding stat for a team that is as good as them. Dallas for 10 quarters had outplayed them. Hell for the first nine quarters, they'd outplayed them wildly. So, and the Clippers were in the, Every step of the way. And then they found mm. something that third quarter. They found something in the fourth quarter expressly. Um, and I guess we should talk about it. That small, small pick and roll action with Rondo as the screener. You wrote about it today. It's crazy. I did a video breakdown of it today. Um, 
I have not seen a team. It reminded me of when I'm gonna the tell Lakers. You, I'll, I'll tell you what it reminded me of after you, because it, it's, it's kind of crazy. It reminded me of the Lakers against the Clippers. Uh, the third meeting of last season, the one before they went into the bubble, which was uh, LeBron hunting Lou Williams over and over. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like. It, yeah, because it because it, it just felt like every single time Rondo came up to screen, it didn't matter if Rondo scored. It really didn't. Mm-hmm. It was the simple action of Dallas wanting to switch it and having to switch it that created every single wide open shot the Clippers got in the final eight minutes of that game. The the biggest thing that it uh, I guess the reason that it works so well is not only like obviously Ty says you don't want to switch that guard on a Kawhi. Dallas is in freakout mode if they have to switch. Was it Jalen Brunson? I think mm-hmm. that's yeah primarily yep. him. Like him on Kawhi, and honestly, you might disagree, but like if I'm Rick Carlisle. And it, and we're in a tight game. It's like a three or four or five point game at that point. Whatever the whatever it was, um, when they started that stuff, it I, I feel like I would give up the switch rather than just completely breaking down my defense on the back end. And I personally would would probably dare Kawhi to beat me that way. I know Jalen Brunson's way smaller, but like, hey, I mean, if he if Kawhi's knocking down all kinds of crazy stuff, then you're gonna lose. Um, similar to the Luca game plan, so I think if I if I was Dallas, I just wouldn't have sent doubles or traps to Kawhi, which got Rondo into that release valve at the foul line, which got everyone like jumbled. On, yes, I mean as soon as they, Rondo they out. as soon as Rondo caught the ball at the nail or a, a little bit on some possessions, it was at the it was at the top of the arc, and he would just have a runway to dictate what's going to happen. Dallas acted like they had never seen, and I guess you call it an exile. They have never seen a scenario where they have to choose between the wing and the corners and inadequately uh, close out the shooter. So, I mean, it was, it was wild. What? Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say there's a play sequence where, if I remember correctly, uh, I believe with like seven minutes to go, Rondo attacks the driving lane. And they end up getting a kick, a swing, and a three because Dallas X's out really poorly. Yeah. Um, and then the next possession, they're up six at this point. So they, that three by Morris in the corner puts them up by six. The next possession for Dallas, Porzingis misses a nine-foot turnaround. Clippers come down. They spam the action again. Kawhi ball handler, Rondo screener. Rondo flips the screen. The switch is forced with Brunson. Now he passes to Rondo at the at the top of the arc. Now, this was the insane part because Rondo in a split second has to decide what he's going to do. Because I, I love this. Try, I love I'm it. Try so to, much. I'm going to try to set this up for people so that they can understand the situation. Kawhi passes to Rondo at the top, and I'm going to freeze frame it there. Rondo has the ball on the catch at the top of the arc. Running at him is Luka Doncic from Mm -hmm. the wing, or excuse me, from the left elbow, who's supposed to be the wing defender, which is where Reggie Jackson is anchored at the wing, and Morris is in the corner, uh, the left corner. Mm -hmm. So when Doncic is is rotating over, in a split second in his mind, Rondo has to decide, 
Am I swinging to Reggie for the three or am I attacking the closeout? And he does something actually interesting. I think he, in that split second, I think he decided I'm not passing. I'm going to attack because Dallas has to respect the corner shooters. George is in the near side corner. Morris is in the far side corner. And when he attacks the closeout, there's not a goddamn soul in the paint <laughs> within three miles. And Rondo gets a wide open layup and the Clippers are up by eight. And Dallas has to call a timeout with 623 to go. And, it, and at that time, Dallas pulled out Jalen Brunson for Dorian Finney-Smith because of that. Because they yeah. kept giving it up. And that's how the Clippers played Brunson off the floor, which credit to them, Brunson has been good for Dallas in this series. He's been very good. And this was the way for the Clippers to play him off the floor. By using this action, not only did it generate an open Rondo layup, it generated three wide open Marcus Morris corner threes. It generated a wide open Reggie Jackson corner three to ice the game with two minutes to go. It is an action they've ran so many damn times. It has been ingrained. Mm -hmm. And I think down the stretch of game three, we all saw collectively why they've been spamming that all season to get ready for moments like this so that when it's backs against the wall, you need to have this game on the road or your season is a, is pretty much effectively over because no team's ever come back from down 3-0 in the NBA. We need to have this game. It's crunch time. We're going to go to something that we've drilled so much we don't even have to think about it. And it worked. Yeah. All those reps in the regular season paid off. We are going to be talking about this. Uh, I, I feel like we could spend another 10 minutes on this because it's so fascinating to me. And something that I thought about is it like if a big if, if the Clippers um, win the series and go on like this and win the West and, and great things happen for them, they, they're prosperous this, this uh, playoff run then we're going to be looking back on two things. We're going to be looking back on that run that they made in the first quarter as something that was a season and, you know, just a game changer. Like it was just, it, it was franchise altering. If we're yes. going to be honest, like if they go on to win the title, which yeah. is a big, if I'm just saying that that's a big, if, yeah. if the Clippers go on to win the title from here, what it, they did at the, in that run at the end of the first quarter is franchise altering. Yes, and then and then the decision which Rondo said post game was Ty Lue's decision to spam that action. My favorite part of it was at the six minute mark when Kawhi is pushing up the floor or, or walking up the floor, I should say, because they're going so slow and methodical, uh, methodical at that point. Rondo sets the screen, and. Uh, actually, I have the wrong. Yeah, no, this is it. Rondo sets the screen, and as he catches, like Rondo catches on the right wing. Okay, so he ca- it's, it's actually like flipped. I mean, he catches on the right wing after a few possessions of catching on the left on the at the top. So he catches. He has a lot of real estate. He has a lot of room. Is this the one where he pops to the right wing? Yes, yes. Yeah. Pops to the right wing, catches, and I have it paused as he's getting toward the foul line toward the nail and he makes a decision that I wrote about and and I'll, I'll kind of read my sentence here that I wrote the subtle yet genius decision to hit Reggie Jackson on the wing first, knowing the defense will have to rotate away from Marcus Morris in the corner. Like that is something that 
God love him. Lou Williams is great. Like, like this stuff is Rondo's expertise. And I don't know how many players are making that wing pass before freaking out and seeing Marcus Morris wide open and hitting him first. And, and that opened up a lot of things. It opened up Luka Doncic uh, <laughs> freaking out on his own and, and sprinting to Reggie. And they just completely screwed it up. And Marcus Morris mm-hmm. got the three-pointer. They had Dallas looking like how the Clippers looked for the first two and a half games. Yes. And, and by, like, by the way, like what it reminded me of it, I'm not comparing them to the, to this action. Cause to me, this is the, the deadliest action that we've seen in the last 20 years, the Curry dream on pick and roll. But yeah. All I, the handoffs too. Yeah. Yes. I, from this standpoint, Justin is what this reminded me of. They ran it so many times. They ran it what, seven or eight straight times after the seven minute mark of the fourth quarter. It's the, it's the progression of the play. It's it's all the different wrinkles that come out of it. Where if you if you run Curry Draymond pick and roll, it's not just Draymond getting the ball and going four on three and creating an advantage at the rim, which is which was usually Iguodala. It's not just Curry shooting. It's everything intertwined together to the point where you even have those those handoffs or those uh, those handbacks after Draymond catches on the short roll and then decides, Oh, you think I'm going to roll to the rim? You're wrong. I'm going to pitch it back to Steph Curry. So it's just like the, the progression that you see over the course of four or five minutes. I think we saw that with the Clippers here because as we've already talked about, we have instances of Rondo catching in the short roll, delivering it to, to the wing and, and getting Morris an open three in the corner. We also have Kawhi just saying, Oh, I don't need this. Let me just attack the switch anyway let me attack let me attack either maxi cleva or if you're going to switch brunson onto me and then we also have like rondo as you eloquently described taking the layup himself yeah i mean this is this is a very high level series it is i love it like this is why playoff basketball like you can love the regular season i love the regular season grind i love like the uh, just just seeing the progression of a team from game one to 72 or 82. But like the playoffs, this is when things really get like things get tight. And if you make a mistake, you're you're probably screwed. <laughs> it, it's you know, I understand that there are going to be Clipper fans who are listening to this who are just like. This is like we're down to nothing. Um, which I mean, yeah, but they're going to say like, we're down to nothing. How can you find this interesting or, or, you know, Mm. be talking about how high level, because I think you also need to appreciate the basketball that's being played like by both teams. Like there's high level, like, yes, the Clippers are not shooting well from three Dallas is shooting scorching from three. And we'll get into that in a second as we go to talk about game four and what might lie ahead. But like, this is such a thinking person's game. Mm-hmm. and series where there are so many little things that are being tweaked. Last time these two teams met in last year's postseason, Paul George couldn't make a shot. Lou Williams was really good offensively. Avica Zubats was great. Montres Harrell couldn't stop Boban Marjanovic, which I, I cannot blame him at all for that. Porzingis was good. Landry Shamit might have saved them as a starter. And Reggie Jackson was making damn near every three he took Seth Curry was killing the Clippers Trey Burke was killing the Clippers I was gonna ask you what if Seth Curry was in this series right now I think Dallas wins it if he's here (laughs) me too I mean which is an 
maybe people think that's an insane statement. I just think that's kind of just being honest with ourselves. You would have to, you would literally have a, another Tim Hardaway coming off the bench and doing Tim Hardaway things. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, we do need to talk about game four, but before moving on to game four, I want to bring up something interesting from game three that kind of went a little bit over overlooked by people. Um, the Clippers won the paint battle again. Uh, they won it in game three, 46 to 24. I want to talk about this because one thing that people didn't bring up. Dallas actually attempted one more shot inside the paint than the Clippers did, but they missed uh, they missed 11 more shots, essentially. Clippers were 23 of 33 in the paint. Dallas was 12 of 34, which is an ungodly shooting percentage in the paint. And I, I thought, well, that's that's a weird number. I don't know how sustainable that is. Maybe the Clippers got lucky. Yes, I understand Dallas is shooting 50% from three. So, you know, them shooting poorly in the paint while they're shooting great from three. Maybe they're uh, like, you know, it's it's kind of like karma, I guess, without a better phrase to use. Mm-hmm. But I, but I looked at something. They were only 7 of 12 in the restricted area. So only 12 shots in the restricted area in in game three. They took 22 shots outside the restricted area, but still in the paint. So kind of like that little floater range, you know? Yeah, the John Morant range. Yeah, the the Memphis range, because they (laughs) freaking love that range. Um, What's interesting is in the second half, Dallas got to the rim eight times for layups. Eight times in 24 minutes? Well, here's the thing that's crazy. They were only three or four inside the restricted area in the first half. So they got to the rim more in the second half. The thing that's staggering, they were one of one of 11 outside the restricted area, but still inside the paint in the second half. What ended up happening, I think, from watching this game a couple more times since the end of it on a Saturday night is I think by going small and switching everything, they kind the Clippers kind of just walled them off. Yeah. And they just forced them into like tougher like paint shots. And it's a lot easier to it's a lot easier and better to play that way if you have the lineup of uh Batum out there that's able to to muck things up and, and create difficult shots. I, I think the trouble that the Clippers get into when they want to switch a lot and and kind of uh keep the ball in front is when you put zoo and a Reggie on the floor. Like, I don't think you can put both on the floor together because then you have two options that Luca can just pick on. If you limit that to just one option he can pick on, you're doing better for yourself. I'd agree. Uh, you want an interesting Luca Batum stat from the series? Absolutely. 62 minutes with Doncic on the floor and Nick Batum also on the floor. 62 minutes. The Clippers are plus four. In the 56 minutes that Batum has sat when Doncic is on the floor, Dallas plus 29. 29. Okay, give him the MVP. This guy, uh, all that proves to me is, like, (laughs) he might be the one that's over or outperforming his salary the most. I mean, Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of any other playoff player. I can't. I'm I'm sure there is somebody, but. Um, We briefly touched on. The big change in the second half being he benched Zoo to start Nick. Um, the underlying factor of doing that was when Collie Stein came in around the four minute mark or so in the third quarter, Ty brought Zoo back in, and that was the best Zoo stretch of the series by far. Those four minutes, he actually looked like 
how we think zoo is. Yeah. You know, uh, when you really get to like the nuts and bolts of everything, the Clippers need zoo. Like a hundred percent. They need him. You're not winning. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say you're not winning the series without him, but like, cause, cause I think they can prevail in different lineups that don't, that don't involve him, but like you're not winning as a franchise and you're not winning a championship or the Western conference without him. And if you bench him in the series, uh, the confidence might wane a little bit. So, I mean, yeah, uh, Zoo comes in in the third quarter. The Clippers are leading by three. Um, they leave the third quarter up by three. Uh, so it wasn't like they got hurt or anything. Or I should actually say he comes in up by two because Collie Stein makes the free throw after he comes in. But um, Zoo gets three offensive rebounds, and one of them leads to Terrence Mann making a little short jumper from the midi. Um, it, it's just really interesting that I think that's the pathway for, for Ty with Zoo is, you know, we can play you against Willie Cauley-Stein, but when Dallas goes five out with Kleba, and Kleba's been great in the series, and poor Zingas, who's, you know, been kind of wishy-washy at times, it gets a little bit difficult to play him, but I think there's something there in the Cauley-Stein minutes. Now, is that too niche of, of, a, of a time? Because Cauley-Stein's only played 33 minutes in the series. Possibly. And if if that's the case, does Carlisle decide to play Nicola Melli, who he played for 15 minutes over the stretch of game one and two? Does he play Dwight Powell more? Like, does he space the floor more? Like, I, like there's so many things. Like, I, I don't know. But one of the biggest takeaways, not to transition for this, but one of the biggest takeaways is it appears that Luke is wearing down a little bit, um, which is – absolutely insane to say for a guy who's having 38 a game in the series folks yeah um the the amount of energy and effort it takes to be that all-in-one engine for your team it's i mean i think we've all got spoiled by like what a lebron does where he has the physical capabilities to put that on his back and to, and to put that on his shoulders and do that it's hard for a guy that's uh, much, I, I guess, much smaller in terms of, you know, physique, but uh, also like 22 years old. Like This isn't, this is like 2007 LeBron, okay? Like, I don't know, although LeBron did go to the finals that year in 07, like, this is a much different NBA. And like, it, it is tiring for someone that's not, you know, Doncic doesn't have the reputation for being in the best shape. And it's not like he's ever going to be like that, you know, physical monster. So it is going to be taxing for someone like him to take on this type of load. In the fourth quarters of the series, Doncic is now five of 18, uh, two of nine from three. Um, I'm not saying that's indicative of him slowing down. I think the types of shots he's taken has shown that. And you and I talked about this before we started recording. One of the interesting trends in this series compared to last year's postseason series between the Clippers and Mavericks is Doncic specifically his shot profile last postseason against the Clippers. So 2020 postseason in the bubble, Luka Doncic takes 128 shots, 44 of them are three pointers. So his three point attempt rate, meaning the number of threes, attempted divided by the number of field goals attempted was was 34.4 percent so 34.4 percent of lucas shots in the 2020 postseason against the clippers were three-pointers it's 45.7 percent this postseason 
Um, Which is, <laughs> by the way, that, that is uh, almost identical to James Harden's career. It's, it, I mean, it's st- step back maestro. You know, I mean, he's hitting them. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's very taxing. Um, the other takeaway is 2020 postseason, 43% of Doncic's shots came inside eight feet. So he did get to the rim. This series, 25%. He's not getting to the rim as much. And by not getting to the rim as much, he's not getting easier shots. And yes, he is making them. I understand he's making these threes. I get it. But it's he's working so hard to get to these to get to some of these shots. He's hitting fadeaway pull-ups against uh against Zubots. He's hitting, you know, he's step hitting. back threes against everyone. I wanna and I know what you're gonna say, and I'm gonna bring it up right now. Game two. Doncic hits one of the five greatest shots I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Just so people understand, he takes this shot. I believe it's at the end of the second quarter. Two, two for one. Yeah, thirty seconds to go. He's dribbling away from me. I'm behind the. I'm behind the basket in which the Dallas bench is at. So I'm behind the basket. He's walking away from me, shooting at the other basket. He dribbles, sidesteps one legs into this pull up three. He let it go, and in my head. I went, no, <laughs> no. And he drilled it. And I just remember saying to myself after that, that's one of the greatest shots I've ever seen in my life. And he, and he, he made, he's an incredible singular talent. Just one of the most incredible players we'll ever see in our lifetime. Hands down bar none. I also do think he's wearing down a little bit. Does, yeah. Could I eat my words mm-hmm. in a couple days? Obviously I could. Um, with the way the Clippers have started games, I could eat it very soon. <laughs> but I do think there is some credence here with it's okay. If Luca scores, he's going to score. He's an incredible player. He's going to a- probably average 35 a game in the series. It's fine. If he scores, we can't let everyone else score. Yeah. And the biggest guy yeah. who's not scoring for Dallas right now is Chris Porzingis Cause he's averaging 14 points a game. And last postseason against the Clippers in three games, he averaged 24 and he looked great. I guess the thought is that <laughs> I guess the idea is that Porzingis has a good second half of the series, however long that goes, because he is getting absolutely mauled and eaten alive on social media. It is the amount of Mavs fans that are ready to ship him out of town <laughs> because like I, I think they, I, you know, I think Dallas fans have been applauding Paul George for his comments about how, there is zero room protection. You know what a Paul, sentence, huh? What a sentence to say. Uh, people have been it, applauding Paul George for what he said. <laughs> yes, that, what that, is that, happening? N- never been the case. Um, <laughs> I think um, you know PG didn't. I'm, I'm going to say this clearly. PG did not say this, but I think the notion is that Mavs fans are are thinking like PG's calling them soft, and that is. <laughs> that that certainly feels like the case because the Clippers are shooting 74.7% at the rim in this series and drawing fouls left and right, you know, making their free throws, number one free throw shooting team of all time. So although the Mavs are shooting 53.4% on non-heave three-pointers, like Jeez. you're making up the difference little by little. You're making up the difference on your free throws, which is a big deal. I mean, I, I, we kind of gloss over it because professionals should hit free throws, so it's never really a big talking point until they miss them. Um, 
And so the Clippers are making it up there and at the rim. Like, this is like the, the whole Rudy Gobert point, right? Like, it's like, sure, other defend other type of defenders are more valuable in postseason settings until you're just getting clobbered at the rim, and then you need someone like that. So it's like, yeah, I mean, if you're going to give up 75% efficiency at the rim, uh, you're probably going to lose the series unless you just do something heroic. And And so far, the Mavs have been heroic. One of the staggering things from this series, the Clippers have been outscored by six points through three games. Okay, just six points. Dallas has made 18 more threes. God. Like, I, 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 I don't know what to say. I really, I really don't. If Porzingis um, is, is above average, they win comfortably. But he he's he hasn't been with, with everybody else playing like this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Maxi Kleba, seven of eleven from three. Tim Hardaway Jr., fifteen of twenty three. Jalen Brunson, four of uh, four of seven. Dorian Finney Smith, five of twelve. Which that doesn't sound amazing. It's still forty two percent. He did shoot well from three in the second half of the season. You and I have talked about this before. Uh, the mm-hmm. last when we basically kind of previewed the series. Um, even Porzingis is shooting thirty eight and a half percent in the series from three. Like, it's not like they have none of their guys are shooting poorly from three. Everyone's shooting good to freaking fantastic. Yeah. And then you look at the Clippers, Paul George, five of 21, Reggie Jackson, seven of 21, Marcus Morris, five of 16. It's it's if the Clippers can just get a teeny weeny more from their role players. And if PG can make a couple threes and Dallas starts missing some threes. I, I, I don't know with the interesting thing. And I said this in the spaces on Twitter, the spaces thing we did before game two. If you remember, I said the interesting outcome for game two is if the Clippers lost and went down to nothing on the road, because they were going to really find out what this team is made of. Well, mm-hmm. down to nothing, down 19 in the first quarter on the road, 17,000 people. Biggest crowd, I believe, in the NBA this season so far. And they came back and they won. They made adjustments. They kicked the crap out of the Mavericks for the last 40 minutes of that game. Um, I think we learned a lot from what that, like the mindset of the team compared to past years. Mm-hmm. There's a long road to go, though. Game four, game four is a completely different game. Um, I, I just you don't remember. Take, like, you can't take game three to game four. Yeah, yeah. I just remembered that Steve Ballmer was there. So, like, you know how I was telling you, just just imagine the because because for me, like, I I seriously one hundred and ten percent thought it was over. I thought that they're like you're not going to crawl out of a hole when it's thirty to eleven and Luca's looking like that and Hardaway Junior's doing that on Kawhi Leonard in, in transition. Um, it's just not going like. The card, it's not in the cards for you to pull out that game if if Dallas is feeling that confident. And I'd like to know what Bomber was saying at that moment versus what he was saying whenever Morris was hitting three straight threes in the fourth quarter. <laughs> I, I would love to see that. Sergi Baca didn't play game three because of uh, back spasms. I feel like we need to talk about that. Uh, oh, he's questionable yeah. for he's questionable for game four. Um, if you're listening to this before game four. Do not expect Sergi Baca to play a game for it because, well, as Ty Lue said on Saturday afternoon when we did media, Sergi Baca's still in Los Angeles. So. He's two thousand miles away. Like <laughs> he's not, he's not playing. He's not playing. I if Sergi Baca plays, it's Willis Reed. 
Like, what are we doing, man? Um, yeah, questionable. Okay. Yeah, I'm questionable to play tomorrow, too. <laughs> I'm questionable because they might sign me. I don't know. Um, Surge, I said this after game two to people, uh, several other media members. I don't think Surge was moving well, and obviously we come to find out he wasn't. He was not moving like he was in the final two regular season games, in my honest opinion. Uh, my eyes lit up off the – like my eyes <laughs> jumped whenever Ty said that uh, he's feeling really bad. Surge is feeling really bad. Yeah, he yeah, that was the sign um, that like something really was wrong. Uh, but by the way, shout out to Sergi Baca, because when the Clippers were down 30 to 11, he tweeted out the team was going to win this game <laughs> and they won this game. Serge Ibaka, apparently, according to him, tweeted from his, quote, voodoo room. I'm more fascinated by this dude as the months go on. If they win a title, just <laughs> hypothetically, just just humor me for a second. If this team wins a title, Serge Ibaka's had the oddest season to a title I've ever seen. He yeah. was MIA for two months with an injury that was described as back tightness. Then he missed <laughs> postseason games and was in a voodoo room. He had art that he was wearing. I don't know. Starter. Uh, now, let's just really retrace it. Starter playing incredible. Uh, I guess you could say incredible basketball because the starting lineup was he gets hurt. Um, he talks to us twice or three times all year. That'll be the lowest, the fewest amount of times an NBA champion has spoke to the media guaranteed. And He's been in and out of the lineup. He was in a voodoo room. He predicted a major comeback when no one else in the world thought it was possible. Yeah, I would say so. I just don't know what to say anymore about him. <laughs> well, all right. So I, this is something long term that we don't really have to get into a lot. We can maybe just talk for 30 seconds about it. But like how what's the concern meter about next season? Because he has that player option that he'll definitely pick up. Anytime it's a back issue with a seven footer on the wrong side of 30, you're a little bit concerned. Yeah. I just, I just, I I say wrong side of 30 as someone who, you know, (laughs) so, I mean, he's 31, he'll be 32 in September. It's just, he's had a long career, long playing career. He's been here since he was like 19 years old. Um, Yeah, that's, that's a tricky thing, man. Hey, we got DeMarcus Cousins though. Oh God! <laughs> hey, Demar- Demarcus Cousins was uh like supposed to not not supposed to, but like the idea of him getting playing time. Whenever Ty said that we might see him, I was just like, Ty, quit lying to us, please stop. That was yeah, because oh, my God, I had someone tell me that the series might need Demarcus because of like his physicality and like. I just want to shut. Presence. I want to shut down the conversation whenever someone tells me that. I'm just going to tell you. Like, well, I mean, it's not a it's not a wild and wacky thought. It's just in this series, if Zoo isn't getting the job done, oh god, who the you think Demarcus is going to switch out on the perimeter just fine? <laughs> that man's going to look like a baby deer. If he was all right, the the difference between Zoo and Demarcus is like if Luca hits two two or three straight step backs on him. Demarcus might just foul him really hard. <laughs> like, just might foul him really, really yeah, hard. Yeah, just that, <laughs> yeah. Um, which isn't needed, but yeah. yeah. Terrence was a big difference maker in game two. He helped him get back into that game a little bit. And Ty really said, I mean, I asked him, are we going to see Terrence man minutes in game three? And he said, definitely in the first half. And he did. Terrence played. Terrence was good. Terrence. Terrence pisses them off for some reason. 
Yeah, I mean, because his uh, hey, by far on the on the entire roster, his second and third jump, like on the offensive rebounds, it's kind of it's kind of ridiculous. And I think that yeah. has irritated irritated Dallas, like because uh, the Clippers. I don't know what the numbers say to this, but it feels like they get second and third opportunities more when Terrence is out there. I mean, he has four offensive rebounds. That's tied for third most on the team with Nicholas Batum. Mm-hmm. I mean. It is what it is. It's not like the Clippers are a great offensive rebounding team, but I do believe they're better with Terrence on the floor. Um, I also think this plays a little bit into like the wearing Luca out thing where Terrence is so active that he forces Luca to pay attention on defense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I've been saying you need to put Luca into some actions like you need to make him do things. And even on those on those small, small pick and rolls that we saw the the major not the major breakdowns but some of the ma- some of the breakdowns were from Luca making a wrong step or, or a misstep but that's not exactly exerting energy so I think you need to pull him into some of the actions and 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 force him to defend Kawhi force him to defend Paul George and and really like you know beat him down a little bit N- not not violently but you know uh, just, fi- <laughs> <Not> just violently <laughs> physically um yeah he's been anchored on Marcus a lot in the weak side corners. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit surprised I haven't tried to play some mid post stuff with Marcus just for that. But I mean, look, Marcus looks like so we didn't touch on this. I guess we can touch on this briefly. This is running long. I apologize to people, but there's a lot to parse through over three games and going to game four. One of the intre- I keep saying one of the one, one of the interesting is like <laughs> my go- like you would yeah. by the way and me with one of the interesting Um it's like, damn, Justin, that, how, many, how many interesting things are there? There's a ton. The, the world is interesting at this point. Something that really did pique my interest, though, is in the arena for game two, Marcus hits those two threes late in game two to bring them within five, and then he fouls out. Yeah. He was 0 for 9 from three before he made those two. And then he comes into game three, and he, and he starts shooting a little bit better. So he starts 0 of 9 from three in the series. He's made five of his last seven. Regression and, to the mean in the good way, I guess. And they're corner threes, open corner threes. So, yeah. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's progression to the mean. Also, Reggie started to get open corner threes. He got them in game two as well that he hit a couple of. Um, I, I need some. Re- I need some advanced analytical breakdown of Marcus Morris's corner three point percentage whenever he's in front of the opposing bench. I need that. That'd be interesting. I guess you could figure that. I mean, it would take a lot of, um, <laughs> yeah. it would take a lot of um, d- like, did like a deep dive. Like all you'd have to do is pull up like the very beginning of a game to figure out what side of the floor the opponent's mm-hmm. bench was on and then run the first half, second half numbers. It probably wouldn't end up being a uh, correlation, but I just, I feel like the dude is a lot better when he's in front of, of, of the other team's bench. It, well, yeah, because he can shoot his little finger guns at them. Yeah, and and something something uh, I noticed going through film from the bubble series was this the game that Luca hit the uh, the game winner of Reggie, the shot right before that. You remember what it was? It's a uh, Marcus in the in the left corner. Kawhi drives in fake pass to PG, but he hits Morris in the corner and then Morris hits the three and That's then he, right. imme- he immediately, I think it was over, or against Kleba and he immediately like drops his like little three goggles down to Kleba's feet and just stares at him. It's like, man, this dude is a world-class taunter. I'll tell you. 
Yeah, I, I that's the first. By the way, that technical foul on him uh, towards the end of game three for his celebration he's done all year was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, Clippers shot 42%, 42.8% in the regular season on catch and shoot threes. That's 38.8 in, the, in this postseason series, which isn't, I mean, that's not a, it's not a terrible drop. Like that's, you're kind of like, when you're talking like three games, like one or two makes will really mm-hmm. move your percentage up and down. Dallas on catch and shoot threes, 36.9% in the regular season, 459 in the playoffs. They've obviously seen that go up. Dallas pull up three pointers regular season, 34.4%. Postseason, 56.3%. If Dallas comes back to earth just a little bit, this could get interesting. Um, I'm not saying they will. Teams can do this over full series. We've seen it. Dallas did this against the Lakers many years ago. Um, it is what it is. Uh, you, there is a stat that you did want to that you want to talk about. I know about uh, Kawhi and PG driving to the rim. Oh yes, I mean it's yours, so you go ahead. But I mean, he, Kawhi and PG, it feel like it, it really does feel like they have decided on their own. I, maybe it's Ty saying it to him as well. Maybe it's Ty preaching that hey, they cannot stop us inside. But all year long, I think people have on a national scale have pointed way too much towards the there's a lack of rim pressure they don't get to the paint they don't take a lot of their attempts from the restricted area but they haven't really understood that it's Kawhi might be the ultimate guy when I guess next to LeBron when it comes to not just not showing his full hand in the regular season I'm not going to say he doesn't care about it he he still loves to go out there, and he's not, he's not he wants to win every single game he plays in, and he's going to try his damnedest to do so. But it, when it's playoff time, like this dude is driving more and more to the basket, and PG I, PG is the biggest one, Justin, because he could easily settle on a lot of these jump shots. He could easily settle like he did in game two, whenever Porzingis he had him on a switch. And yeah. the entire you were in the arena. The entire arena sounded like from afar, like from TV, that that it was just like nervous energy. Like, just don't pull up, please drive, please drive. And I'll be damned. He pulled up from three and missed it. And it's like ever since then, it's been head down. We're gonna get to the rim, and you're not gonna do anything anything about it. I mean, yeah. Uh, the stat is. Uh, in the regular season, Kawhi Leonard averaged 12.5 drives per game. That's during the regular season, 12.5 a game for Kawhi Leonard. PG averaged 11.8. Uh, those are not high numbers. Uh, they're they're fine. They're just not high numbers. Postseason, three games. Kawhi Leonard has jumped from 12.5 drives per game to 17.3. Paul George has moved from 11.8 to 15.3. And PG is shooting 81% on those drives. Gosh. Um, if you're looking at this, this from a team aspect, in the regular season, the Clippers were in the bottom third of the league in drives per game at 41.9. In the postseason, they've drastically changed this. Uh, have you looked at the number? No. It's jumped to 53 a game. 53 a game? Okay. That's, fourth, that's fourth highest in the league. Um, they're shooting 62.9% on drives. Um, they're passing on 37.7%. They're getting a solid assist rates. They're, they're playing, they're playing the game they needed to play now for game four, five, 
potentially six, potentially seven. Do they force Dallas to miss enough or not? Because as great as the Clippers are shooting around the rim, there is going to be some regression there. Yeah. Some like, like it's bound to happen. I I Um, I think that the regression would come from Dallas severely overhelping. And then although your regression at the rim comes, your progression comes from, Oh, Hey, wide open threes. Right. Yeah, like that's that's the natural thought. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's the actual like how it would actually happen, but that's the process in terms of uh, that. Um, the pull up shooting numbers for Dallas are just absurd, and you, <laughs> like like it, it's. I will say this: I, this is the fourth time it's been mentioned since I started talking to you tonight. Hardaway's pull up three over Kawhi was like it could have been. The absolute – it could have been the, the dagger to the franchise. That's wild to think about. Like, it, it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, Dallas has an effective field goal percentage of 62.4% on pull-up sh- uh, jumpers in the series. To put that into perspective, the team in second is Brooklyn, 529 I I, 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 I I don't know. I mean, some of them are contested. Some of them aren't. Like, I get that. But you would assume that at some point, guys will miss shots. Dallas is averaging 40 points a game on pull-up on pull up jumpers. <laughs> 40 points a game. The top team in the NBA this year, uh, per game-wise, in the regular season was Portland at 33.8. Would like, I, to pull, I, I, would like to pull Rick Carlisle into a room and... and Hook him onto a lie detector and then and, and ask him if he thinks this is something that they can win with moving forward. <laughs> I, because it's, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, Dallas was a good pull up shooting team in the regular season. To put into perspective, if you just look at effective field goal percentage, regular season wise, Dallas was sixth. Uh, points per game wise, they were tied with Phoenix for third. So this isn't some kind of like, oh my God, they're, you know, there's, they're a bad pull up sh- shooting team who's, insane they're just shooting insane they were already good they're just shooting at a level that no team has shot at and maybe ever yeah um oh I, I, I don't think there's a way for us to look but i first three games of a series i'm going to bet my entire living that it's never happened to that degree like i just don't think it's happened for like a postseason series first three games of a postseason series i mean there's the only one who would come to mind for me is uh, that Cle- Cleveland in that Cavs series in 2016 that, that oh, okay. I referenced yeah. before. Yeah. Um, like Cleveland shot so well in that series that it, it really... Um, they also the they, broke the, they broke the NBA record for threes. I, I can't remember if it was that series or the series before that, but they hit 25 threes in Atlanta, I think, or in Cleveland, but uh, broke the record. It was one I mean, of those games. It's just one of those things where you keep waiting for Dallas to kind of like really come back down to earth. And I don't want to sit here and be like, you know, the Clippers are going to be fine because Dallas is going to come back there. We don't know that. Like, yeah. we honestly got don't. Uh, Cleveland's pull up shooting numbers in the first three games of that series, the, the, the three games in which they went ballistic from three, by the way. Cleveland was shot effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers in that series. First three games, 44 and a half percent. It wasn't like, it wasn't like they were great, you know, pull-up shooters, uh, shooting great on pull-ups. They were 
They were drilling catch and shoot threes. Oh, that's J.R. Smith's music right there. That's what that was. Yeah. So, I mean, this is respect to Dallas. They're pushing the Clippers. Whether or not you think the Clippers are going to come back and win the series or not, like Dallas, you got to give Dallas some respect. Yeah. You, you don't get two games taken off of you and not give them respect. You know what I also think it does? I think the series has shifted my mind a little bit where coming into the season, I thought, okay, maybe there's only two teams that I could say could beat the Clippers in a series in the West. Um, heading into the next year, like you have to put Dallas, like, like I don't think you or me, maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't think we thought that Dallas could win the, a series against the Clippers coming into the season. Um because we just didn't know what Dallas was going to look like. And, and the Clippers, we thought, might be a little bit better with, with Ibaka and, and all the changes they've made and new coaches. But, like, now you have to put Dallas in the mix, like, for next year. Like, you have to put them in the mix to to be at the top of the – in the top tier of the West. Yeah. I mean, simple as that. Um, there's a long way to go in this series. Who knows? Maybe the Clippers get hammered in game four and they come home for game five and it's like you're down 3-1 and oh my God, like what the hell? Yeah. Maybe the Clippers come out and they hammer Dallas and they come back 2-2 and everyone just goes, well, we're back where we started. Now it's a best of three. If every um, if every road team wins, it uh, might be one of the first. I mean, I know it's happened before, but that would be pretty hilarious. Well, not for the Clippers, but no. yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right, so game four is uh, tonight, Sunday night. Uh, it's a big game, obviously. If the Clippers win, it's an even series coming back to Staples Center, uh, which will be, I believe, June 2nd, which is next Wednesday. If the Mavericks win, the Clippers are down 3-1, and now the Clippers, who lost after being up 3-1 last postseason, have to come back from down 3-1 this postseason with a coach who has come back from down 3-1 in the NBA Finals. So who the heck knows at that point? Uh, Shane... We've gone a very long time on this podcast. Where can people find you? Where can people find your work? Where can you finally get some sleep? Man, talk about that. It's 407. I'm not even that tired. But you can find me on Twitter at YoungNBA. You can even uh, tag Chris Hetzberzingas on my tweets so he can get pissed off about um, Paul George if if you want to. And then you can read my work at Forbes Sports. Uh, I'm probably going to be writing after every game now. Uh, like Justin, the first couple games, I mean, I just had a lot going on, but like uh, try to summarize a lot of what happened for the first three games. That's up right now. Uh, you should find that on my Twitter page as well. This has been a most interesting podcast because of all the stuff we've had to cover. And this has honestly been a most interesting series through three games. Um, yeah. It's it's incredible basketball. I urge people, if you are a fan of just basketball, even beyond the Clippers, if you're a Mavericks fan and you're listening to this, I, I appreciate the listen. But even beyond just the Dallas Mavericks, like as a fan of basketball, this is high level offensive stuff. And yes, the defense on both sides has not been good at all. But a large reason of that is how good the offenses has been overall as well. So just enjoy the basketball you're watching, like enjoy the game itself. Enjoy the stars. The stars have been incredible. Kawhi Leonard, 34, eight and four shooting 60% from the field. Paul George, 27, eight and five shooting 53% from the field. Luka Doncic, 38, nine and nine shooting 52% from the field, 46% from three. These are incredible players. It's been an incredible series. Shane, it's been an incredible podcast. <laughs> Everybody will see you all in the next couple of days. Everybody take it easy. Stay safe. Uh, I almost said hydrate and like social distance. I don't know why I was going to say that, but everyone take it easy. Stay safe. I'll see you guys later.
Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime.